This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Raputin. This podcast is committed to the stories of innovative, creative, and imaginative educators and education leaders across the Hawaiian Islands. Our goal is a thousand points of light, and with 25,000 downloads to date, the wind is in our sails. Speaking of a thousand points of light, my guest today is my longtime friend and teaching colleague, Russell Motter. Russell and I taught together in the history department at Iolani School from 2010 to 2014. When I say taught together, I mean it literally. We team taught U.S. history, merging our two classes into one very cool section that at times traveled to the outer edges of innovation in education and what history could be. But I get ahead of myself. Russell has a BA and a master's in history from the University of Hawaii at Manoa and is working on a PhD from Rice University in Texas. He has been teaching in the history department at Iolani School for 16 years and was its department head from 2005 to 2013. Russell and I co-directed the Education Innovation Lab at Iolani School during the 2013-2014 school year. He has been a curriculum consultant for Punahou School's Pueo program. He coordinated Iolani's Capstone program for two years. Currently, he is the course leader for Iolani's APUS history program. Russell has also taught at the college level here in Honolulu. If you ever have a chance to read Russell's resume, you will see that he has a miscellaneous project section a mile long. Highlights include working on a team that brought technology to Iolani's campus in the form of a K-12 iPad one-to-one program, the second school in Hawaii to do so. I also served on that team with Russell. It was a blast. More than anything, in my humble opinion, Russell's work bringing incredible guest speakers to Iolani School is a highlight. Speakers include Barbara Field, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, John Hope Franklin, a personal hero of mine, Wynton Marsalis, and Isabel Wilkerson, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of the incredible book, The Warmth of Other Suns. Russell originally is from the great state of Georgia, and he acts in local theater productions here in Honolulu, and he is also a master mixologist and, in an earlier life, was a hotel bellman. To say he has lived a rich and intentional life is an understatement. And now, here is my conversation with Russell Motter. Mr. Motter, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Hey, thank you, Josh. It's great to talk to you. And I wanted to wish you a belated happy birthday, too. Oh, thank you. That's very nice of you, Russell. So, listen, when I came to Iolani to teach history back in 2010, we had already known each other for a while. But one thing I did not know about you was your penchant for playing truly awesome music from just about every genre as students filed into your classroom each day, all day. I knew this was magic, Russell, the first time I experienced it. And eventually I adopted the practice for my own classrooms. And by the way, as I worked on this question, I was listening to A Love Supreme by John Coltrane. So when did you start this practice and why? You know, I think when we moved into the new Weinberg building and they equipped us with audio equipment, 
<laughs> it was just a wonderful treat. So I thought, hey, I, I want to share this treat with my students. And it kind of just evolved. And sometimes I'll play little jokes and not even tell them. For example, I'll always play the Beatles Revolution when we talk about 1776. Uh -huh. So that kind of thing. But at the end of the year, when students deliver their evaluations, you know, that's something that always pops up. It just sets a good vibe. You know, students come in early and they want to be there. So, mm -hmm. you know, I guess that's the benefit of it. Mm -hmm. And early on, you were intentional about the fact that you were playing all of these genres that wouldn't have necessarily been in their wheelhouse? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I thought that maybe some kid who's interested in music might say, hey, what was that? And, and I got that, you know, quite a bit and still get that quite a bit. You know, that that's part of it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Russell, no joke, and I'm, I'm not blowing smoke here. You seem to have an encyclopedic knowledge of music and musical artists. The genesis of this must be pretty far back in your life. So when did your love of music start and who were the early musical influences? I think my dad was probably most influential early on. You know, he was an aspiring drummer, so we always had music around the house. I remember the albums that he would play. He really liked the big bands of the 30s and 40s. But I also remember an album by Ray Charles with What Did I Say on it, and I was just mesmerized by that. We also had a ukulele around the house that I taught myself how to play, which was my dad's instrument. And so he had a bunch of sheet music, too, of these old songs, you know, Five Foot Two and Chattanooga Choo Choo, those kind of things. And so I taught myself how to play on the ukulele and then taught myself to play guitar. And then my sister took up the guitar and became a much better player than me. She's a musician in Atlanta, Georgia right now. Actually, he's a musician in Atlanta, Georgia right now. And that's where you're from. That's right. Marietta, Georgia, just yeah. north of Atlanta. So who are some of the other artists that you recall that really caught your attention as you were growing up? You know, I think I started listening to the Allman Brothers and, you know, I grew up in the 70s. So and I, I don't think I'm being nostalgic when I say this is that the 70s was a really fertile period for music in the United States for popular music. You know, there was that Southern thing going with the Allman Brothers and Marshall Tucker. The Eagles uh, were out West doing their thing. I remember the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band exploring uh, bluegrass. The soul sounds of that period, the Philadelphia sound especially, was fantastic. So I listened to all of that stuff. I remember walking into a music store once and I saw an album by Grover Washington Jr. called Mr. Magic. Mm. And it was Grover Washington coming out of a, a swimming pool. And it was <laughs> just the most refreshing cover I'd ever seen. It was just his face. And it had this bright blue water in the background. And I just loved it. And the record was fantastic. It still holds up pretty well. A little on the smooth jazz end, but that's okay. I guess that was part of my... Uh, musical journey as a teenager mm. you know the first album that i ever bought and i did it with my father he took me to the record store in kaneohi and it was my first moment to buy an album and it was jethro tull's thick as a brick and i took it home and i listened to it over and over and i'm sure my dad <laughs> must have just regretted the moment you know because all of a sudden it was thick as a brick like every time you turn around but that was huge for me, that first album that I got. And then the, the next album that I bought was Weather Reports, I Sing the Body Electric, which was just, that was the beginning of my love of jazz. That's very cool. 
I, I had that album too, that um, Thick as a Brick record, you know, and and it, you know, concept album, right? Yeah. So you know that that was a you know that was a great band. Yeah. And uh, I remember my dad took the whole family down to the Omni in Atlanta to see Jethro Tull. It was mm. it was really really nice. That was a great family outing. Yeah. So Russell, I don't like to catch guests with surprise questions, but I want to ask you about one artist in particular. From experience, I know that you love the work of Nina Simone. What did she bring to the table for you? And what is her significance to the history of music? You know, I think it goes beyond just significance of the music. Nina Simone really gives us an insight into the civil rights movement of the early and mid-60s. And as I think about this, I think she presents the audience with a sense of righteous anger. Mm -hmm. If you listen to Mississippi Goddamn mm -hmm. and you realize that she's singing about the events in Mississippi in 1964, civil rights workers disappeared in that state. You can understand more clearly the stakes of, the, of that moment and, and of that movement. And as I said, the, the righteous anger that was behind it she wasn't shy about mm. telling her truth. And her truth was a lot of people's truth. Nina Simone is a, is a giant, absolutely, not just in music, but in the civil rights movement generally. Mm. And so more recently in your teaching career, you began teaching a course called The History of the American Song. So Russell, tell us about this course and the passions, if you will, behind it. You know, again, I think that the basic idea behind the course is that Music is a window into the past. It tells us about the history. And history, of course, informs the music, too, so it works both ways. Popular music, I think, is part of the context. And, and it, it, this is not a recent phenomenon, either. You know, when we think about these, you know, we think about the influence of music. I mean, I think everybody kind of automatically goes to Vietnam and mm. they go to the civil rights movement, for instance. But, you know, I was doing a, a thing with students on country music yesterday, mm -hmm. and I asked them to read a section from J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. Mm. And the idea was to choose five country songs that could function as a soundtrack to that reading. And the themes that J.D. Vance was talking about, the loss of manufacturing jobs in towns like Middletown, Ohio, you know, in the, in the Rust Belt, that really devastates people that devastates towns. Country music singers, Johnny Cash and Merle Haggard, Loretta Lynn, they've been singing about these kinds of things for a long time. And I think what the students learned was a bit of empathy mm. by listening to that music, by reading what J.D. Vance, you know, had to say about his own childhood. You know, I teach in a private school with kids who are privileged. They're wealthy. And they don't really think too much about what it means to be poor. They don't think about the traps of poverty. And I, I think country music, again, provides a window 
into those kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I understand that the structure of the course and knowing you, it's going to be a, a blend of presentation of content, if you will, and also of student exploration of music. Is, is that a fair statement? Is that the way that you approached it? Oh, yeah. I tell them from the very beginning, you got to have open ears and open minds. You might not like what you're hearing, but at least you'll know why you don't like it. I tell them it's a it's a course of discovery. You know, I want them to go beyond what we're listening to in the class on a daily basis. They need to discover for themselves new music. And it it also helps I think refine their own aesthetic sense. Makes them understand why they like the music that they do. Mm. So, uh, you know, along the same lines, I kind of want to wade into the question of accountability and assessment. So what were some of the ways that students accounted for their understanding of the American song, which I suppose is kind of a fancy way of asking what sorts of projects they, they worked on or, or that you developed for them or with them? I've done a lot of different things with this over the years, and, and it's, it's funny that we should be doing this today because the most recent project that they had to do, they had to write a script for a podcast, and the podcast had wow. to be about the blues, mm. and we spent quite a bit of time with the blues. After all, it's one of the most important foundations for American popular music. The blues, too, is a window into the way that people live and the way that they deal with the cards that they've been dealt. Mm. Writing that script was an interesting way to sort of blend history and music. Mm. What do you mean by script? Is it sort of like a radio show? That, that It's a writing? radio show, right? Oh. They actually had to write it out. Wow. So I was able to find some material. In fact, there was a website that I found published by the British government, I believe, that basically was a primer on how to write a podcast. It talked about language. It talked about tone. Mm. Don't use the passive voice. It should be conversational. Mm -hmm. It had to be structured in a certain kind of way. So it was as much a writing exercise as anything, you know, mm. and, and that was enormously helpful. And the kids had a good time with it too, I think. So this is why I wanted to have you on the podcast, Russell, because you, you're so creative in these kinds of things. And I can imagine, for example, that there are a number of variations of this possibility where kids, for example, could be set up or would do the research and prepare themselves to interview, let's say, a blues artist, the way that you'll hear it maybe on a music podcast and other variations like that, right? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. And some of the kids actually took the step of imagining that they were speaking with someone. So mm. the script actually has not just themselves as a narrator, but a kind of back and forth mm. between an expert and an interviewer, for instance. And so I, I thought that was, that was uh, pretty neat that they would be able to do that. Wow, that's so cool. So, you know, we could keep talking about music all day, but I, w I have one more question kind of in the, in the music theme. Your life, Russell, really, to me, seems to be such a rich tapestry of love of history, a love of music, a love for theater acting, which, by the way, is a very cool thing for a teacher to do outside of his or her teaching practice. So when did your theater acting begin and, and what value has your acting brought to your teaching and to your love of music and, and your life? I did a play way, way back in the early 1980s here in Kailua. 
and I can't remember the name of the theater company right now, but it was Arsenic and Old Lace. And, you know, I played a cop in that. And, mm. you know, he just, I just got the bug, got married, had children. And then later on, I kind of went back to the theater. I did To Kill a Mockingbird at Manoa Valley Theater, mm -hmm. and I played the villain Bob Ewell. And I played a couple of villainous characters after that. The plays that I chose to do really did reflect my love of history. And I think looking back on it, it was a way for me to explore really important issues in history. Playing Bob Ewell was kind of an interesting thing because you, know, you could play him as just sort of a one-dimensional bad guy. Mm -hmm. But Bob Ewell was poor and he lived on the outskirts of town. You had to understand Bob Ewell's demons and Bob Ewell's situation mm -hmm. in order to play him, I thought, well. You know, to me, it's kind of a historical and sociological investigation. And is there a way to kind of trace it back to what you were talking about earlier? You know, your dad and the ukulele in the house and your sister playing music and, and your dad playing guitar. Like, was that what happened as you were growing up? There was a, an appreciation, if you will, for the arts? Yeah, I, I think that's true. My, my dad was a graphic designer, too. So the arts were mm. big in the household. And, you know, we were always playing music and giving little performances and stuff. You know, the cousins would come over and we'd get them to sing with us and everything. So, mm. you know, that kind of thing was always going on in the house. Mm. Wow, that's so awesome. So, Russell, kind of shifting directions a little bit, but maybe not that much. Speaking of passion projects. One thing that really jumps out from your resume is the series of guest speakers that you have brought to Iolani School over the years. And I'm going to read what I think is partial, but maybe pretty complete list here. So John Hope Franklin, Wynton Marsalis, Stanley Crouch, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Nate Chenin, Robert O'Mealy, if I'm pronouncing that right, Mm -hmm. Barbara Fields, James Horton, Isabel Wilkerson, and Olympic athlete Tommy Smith. So I have two questions about this. This must have been, Russell, a huge amount of energy on your part to bring these incredible people to Hawaii. And if we talk about, you know, where you put your time is what you value, what led you to start the series? And is there something, some central idea that ties all of these people together? I think the central idea is students understand African-Americans' contributions to this country, not just in terms of politics, where King, for example, redefined our meaning of freedom for the country. Mm. But I think also in matters of culture. The arts especially. Traditions, rituals. All of those things are important and that knit us together as Americans. You know, a lot of times we don't think about where these rituals and things come from. And, you know, that was something, for example, that Ralph Ellison, Albert Murray, Romery Beard, and those guys were really interested in too. So that's always been important to me. Mm -hmm. You know, the Winston Marsalis 
thing was really interesting because I worked my way through school at the UH driving the limousine for the Hyatt Regency in Waikiki. And you, of course, remember Trappers, the jazz club down at the Hyatt. It was a great place. A lot of, a lot of performers came through there and I drove Winton mm. and Winton and me and Rick Nakashima, who owns the Ruby Tuesdays here in town and is a great cheerleader for PBS, by the way. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we took Winton and the band to play basketball up at the UH wow. and we kind of hit it off. And so I would say about 10 years later, maybe Winton was in town with the Honolulu symphony. And I said, well, Uh, And I was teaching at Iolani at that time. It was like the second year I taught this African-American studies course, which, by the way, is the only African-American studies course, I believe, that's offered at the high school level in the state. Mm. I said, Winton's either got to be staying at the Holly Kulani or he's going to be staying at uh, Kahala Hilton. So I called the Kahala Hilton. Can I have Mr. Marsalis's room? They connected me. And I said, hey, Winton, I don't know if you remember me or not. And he says, sure, sure, I remember. He, he said he, he came into class and delivered a magnificent 40-minute lecture on the importance and origins of jazz music. And it, it was just fantastic. Wow. And so that, that's what kind of kicked it off. I was selfish about this in a lot of ways. I just invited people that I was interested in talking to and interested in introducing to the kids too. Mm. That little aloha from Hawaii or aloha from Iolani school in Hawaii in the subject line of an email, it really works wonders. Yeah. You know, I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, kind of on a different line, but over the years I've had a penchant for reaching out to authors that I am reading and I found that there wasn't anybody else in my life, anywhere in my life that was doing this. So I would just like write a letter to the publisher or I would try to figure out what their email is or something like that. And I was always surprised that, you know, almost a hundred percent of them would respond to me. So I'm kind of wondering about your process, like, you know, John Hope Franklin or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, like, did you, how did you do that? How did you reach out to them? You you know, it's funny you should say that because, you know, that you reach out to people. I do that too, you know, and it's typically academics. You can find their email addresses easily. And I'll just write a thank you note, mm-hmm. you know, and I say, hey, listen, your, you know, your book was really important for me. You've been an influence, you know, in my thinking on this matter or that. And always, you know, get a response. I earlier in the year, I emailed Henry Louis Gates mm-hmm. and, and he responded. So, you know, I just think that thanking people and letting people know mm-hmm. that what they're doing is important and that it's, it's reaching kids. Mm. I think that's a really important thing for people to know. It gives them something to think about as they're delivering their message. Mm. One of my favorite authors is John McPhee. And, and back in the 80s, I wrote him a letter because there was no email at that point, And I, I mailed it to his publisher. It was a thank you note for how much I enjoyed his books. And there was one question that I asked him about a particular character. And you know, Russell, seven years later, while he was on a flight from New York to LA, he penned a reply to me. Wow. And it arrived in an envelope, you know, with his his monograph on the upper left corner. And that blew me away. And actually, eventually, I did get to meet him at Punahou when they brought him in as a guest speaker. So it's a very human thing. It's a lovely thing to be able to meet and and talk to people that you might otherwise think are unreachable. The other thing that I do and and is when I go to conferences, academic conferences, I'll usually be on the lookout for people who I think are interesting. Mm. So one year, for instance, I went to the American Historical Association and I listened to Jelani Cobb 
and I went up after the talk and, you know, spoke to him for a couple of minutes, you know, and said, hey, Jelani, I'm from Hawaii and just wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed your talk. He's, yeah, well, when are you going to have me out there? <laughs> and so I'm like, man, you know, you're reading my mind. So, so two years later, we had him at Iolani. And, you know, just a quick plug for our Keebles Chair Committee, we, we're able to bring speakers to Iolani School because of the Keebles Chair and the endowment that is reserved just for that purpose. Mm. Next year, we're going to be having Adam Gopnik from The New Yorker. Mm. In, in a couple of weeks, Helen Jia, who is a lifelong activist on matters related to Asian Americans. She wrote a terrific book called Asian American Dreams. It's a, it's a short history of the Asian American experience. She's going to be joining us at Iolani School. And she's also a, a very important person in the LGBTQ movement. Mm. And that this goes way back you know, to the 1970s mm -hmm. and 80s when she was the editor at Ms. Magazine. So, mm -hmm. you know, Keebles really gives me an opportunity to, you know, play in the sandbox on these kinds of things. Right, right. So one more quick question about these individuals that you've brought in, and then we'll take a break. It strikes me that at a traditional college prep school, which is what Yolani School is, these folks that you bring in and have brought in represent a collection of social critics who who thought way, way outside the box and acted outside the box. So in what ways did these speakers, when you had them on campus interacting with students, shake things up for these students? You know, I think for the historians that come in, the stories that they tell are compelling. And it's one thing for me to stand up there and talk to them about these matters. But for someone coming from the outside, someone who's, you know, neck deep in these issues, I think it's really important for students to hear from these people. They're savvy. The kids are savvy. They understand when they're hearing something important from an important person. It doesn't always work out, by the way. You know, sometimes speakers don't necessarily connect in ways that, that you want them to. But in the settings that we offer, small classrooms at Iolani, 15 to 18 kids, mm -hmm. where these speakers come in and have conversations with the kids, you know, that that's also really important too. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. So, hey everyone, stay with us. After this short break, we will come back with more questions for Russell Motter. Hi friends, Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at UNR 
ulr.com. Mahalo. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Russell Motter, a history teacher at Iolani School and community theater actor, among many other things. So Russell, I want to spend some time asking you about the idea of teaching and thinking inside the box. We did this project together with our two classes at Iolani School, but I want to sort of mine your particular perspective with the benefit of eight years of hindsight. So what was that project and and what are the core ideas behind thinking inside the box? Okay, so I stole the idea from a history teacher that I met at Westminster School in Atlanta, Georgia. And, uh, you know, like Bob Dylan said, music is all about love and theft, right? And so, (laughs) you know, I think teaching is love and theft as well. The idea is at the beginning of the year, and you and I did this, right? So you, you were my conspirator on this. Yes. I took a shoebox and just put a bunch of stuff from my past in it, right? And it, it was like, you know, it could be an airline ticket. It was, maybe it was a letter to my mother when I was here in Hawaii. It was my school transcript from high school, which I probably shouldn't have showed them. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so some other things that were, were kind of distractors to stuff that didn't necessarily mean anything set of keys things like that yeah Yeah, sure sure but if you looked at yeah the key was an interesting one right you Mm -hmm. know so if the kids were smart enough to look at the inscription on the key to find out where it was made it could have placed me at a certain city at a certain time for instance so the idea was to gather all of these sources these primary sources to try to sleuth your way toward knowing this person who was inside the box, trying to make some kind of sense out of who this person was and what their story was. So there had to have been 20, 25 items in that box. And the students had to get together in groups and put their heads together and then, then write their own individual paper about who this person was. Mm-hmm. Who is this guy? So that was the exercise. And into the mix came the iPads. So each of those groups right. had one iPad, which gave them access to the web. Absolutely. So, so they could supplement what was in the box by researching things that could be researched, right? If, for example, they looked at my transcript from Wheeler High School, they would have had to have looked up Wheeler High School mm-hmm. in Marietta, Georgia, find out what the student body was like, what the neighborhood was like or whatever. So that, that, that's what we encourage them to do. Mm-hmm. So Russell, this is a massive subject, perhaps not suited to a relatively short podcast, but one of the things that you and I talked about extensively as we unfolded that project was what it means to be a history teacher and what it means to be a historian. So you can, you can teach history and you can be the historian which is, you know, rather than filling them with facts or interpretations of facts, you're actually, as you were describing, throwing them into the deep end of the pool of being the historian. So if you could talk a little bit more about that and and what the significance of that is. I think there's a big difference between teaching kids to be history students and teaching them to be historians. You know, and you and I, again, talked about this a lot. We wanted kids to develop the habits of mind of the historian. And 
in order to get them to do that, we had to make them do the things that historians do, which is research and read other historians. And that's really important to recognize that there are choices out there about how you tell about history. The interesting thing about history is oftentimes we're, we get too hung up on the narrative, I think. And what we fail to recognize sometimes is that history presents us with a set of problems. And so historians don't necessarily solve these problems, but they explain the problems. And, you know, I think that's an important distinction, too, that I want students to mm. understand. Mm. And so what do you think about the transferability of this concept, like applying the idea to other subjects about, for example, being the chemist or being the biologist or being the art historian? Like, is, is this unique to history or is it kind of a general concept about educational practice? I think that there's value in learning the rules of a given discipline. So a chemist, for instance, may approach a problem a little differently from a historian. And for kids to understand how those disciplines differ in terms of their methodology, I think is, is very, very important. And, and then it becomes kind of up to students to start to pick and choose how these different disciplines offer them a way of seeing the world. Mm. You know, political scientists and historians are different. You know, history is primarily a discipline of context and the specific. Mm -hmm. Political scientists are looking at patterns. And, and I, I think there's, there's a crucial difference there, mm. right? So, so I'll give you an example. Yesterday, we talked about Thomas Jefferson and his relationship with Sally Hemings. I shared that with students. And of course, the students were horrified that, that Jefferson had produced children with his slave. Sally Hemings was an enslaved person. And the New York Assembly in the last week or so, I think, has, or the New York City Council, I think that's what it was, have voted to take Jefferson's statue mm -hmm. out of the building, right? Mm -hmm. I asked students about this. What do you think about this? You know, and as you know, Sally Hemings was 14 when she went to France to watch over Jefferson's youngest daughter. By the time she left France, she was probably pregnant with a child that was fathered by Jefferson. And that's, again, horrifying to us. So I, I said a moment ago that I think context is really important. So yesterday, I shared with them an interview with Annette Gordon-Reed, mm. who wrote a fantastic book about the Hemings of Monticello. I'm reading it now. Yeah. It's a marvelous book. And she knows more about the late 18th and early 19th century than any historian that I know. She knows that world. And the kids have got to understand at least a little bit what that world was like and how it differs from our world in order to make a judgment about whether or not that statue should be removed from mm. a building. So we watched this pretty lengthy interview with Annette Gordon-Reed, and she was explaining the story. And her view essentially is that Sally Hemings didn't have a lot of great choices. She could have stayed in France, by the way, yep. and lived as a free person had she chose to do that, but she didn't do that. 
And her brother, who was older than her, didn't do that either. And so then you have the question of why did she return to Virginia with Jefferson? And it's, you know, it's, it's not an easy question to answer. At first blush, you know, it looks like a horrific kind of thing that Jefferson had done. And, and students can still arrive at that determination, absolutely. But they've got to know what they're arguing against mm-hmm. or arguing with. And I think Annette Gordon-Reed really lends some complexity to this story that forces students into a different kind of place. Mm. So that's awesome. I, I, I want to dig a little bit further into this differences between primary and secondary sources with a different example. What happens, Russell, when students who are given opportunities to be the historian through examination of primary sources from American slavery which they will use to develop their own interpretations of what happened and why it happened, are then given a secondary source to read, in this case, for example, Slavery by Another Name by Douglas Blackman. Like, leading question, but why did they need both, Russell? And should the choice of secondary sources be up to them or should it be up to the teacher? Like, how does that work in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I think the choice of secondary sources is a really important choice that teachers have to make. Every secondary source has a bibliography. So, you know, if you're interested in students exploring on their own, if you present them with a rich secondary source that's been well-researched, your job then has been accomplished by introducing students to a piece of good scholarship. Mm -hmm. And then they can take the next steps if it's warranted, right? I think that competing interpretations of the past is also a interesting way of dealing with this, right? And and one of the habits that students have oftentimes is they tend to break down the interpretive choices so that those choices are binary. So it's either for or against. And I don't think that's the way that historians should operate. It's not the way that most historians do operate. You know, it's about investigating historical problems from different perspectives or different angles. So they're not necessarily binary choices that students have to make. And getting them out of that habit, I think, is really important. Mm -hmm. You know, the other thing, too, that, you know, we have to remember, I think, generally as teachers, is that we need to give students the opportunity to change their minds and to modify their views. And those modifications oftentimes occur after they leave our classroom Mm. for good, Mm -hmm. you know? And so you never know, you know, what you say in class, students are going to take with them beyond your classroom door. Right, right. Yeah, that is so true. And so, Russell, one more question, and then we'll, we'll take another break. You and I presented Thinking Inside the Box, our project that we did together in our history classes, our U.S. history classes. We presented this at a workshop for teachers of all kinds of subjects, which was held at Tokai University here in Honolulu. And I recall, Russell, those teachers and school leaders really kind of flipped out and got very excited and very involved in examining your life in the box using iPads. And I think they even may have had smartphones at that point and working in groups. So why do you think, why did they get so excited? Like what Pandora's box did we open that day for them? 
remember, Josh, that you had to drag me kicking and screaming to do this thing because, <laughs> right. and it was me who was in that box. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think there was a voyeuristic aspect <laughs> to that exercise, you know, that was probably interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's for the students too, that that may be the hook. The key, of course, is to follow that up throughout the year yeah. by giving them materials and historical problems to work with. That's awesome. And I, and I recall, Russell, that when I left the room that day at Tokai, when we were done, I was approached by a teacher, a Chinese language teacher, who was really over the top. She was just so excited. And she realized that in her family, they had discovered a chest in the attic that contained all of these letters that were exchanged between her grandmother and her grandfather, and they were all in Chinese. And she realized that this was going to be possibly an opportunity to approach teaching Chinese language with her students differently, that she was going to be able to give them access to these letters and that they would fall into the deep end of the pool of history while they were understanding, you know, the Chinese written words. I, I remember that very clearly. And that was a, that was important. I realized the power of what had happened that day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, families always have stuff in the attic, don't they? They and do. <laughs> so, you know, there's any number of ways that you can do this. You know, Alan Sui Mori, who teaches Asian American studies at our school, you know, he has students talk to their parents and their grandparents about family history. You know, that, that's a gateway into what historians do. Yeah. And to build on that, I think, can be really fruitful yeah. for the classroom. Hey, everyone. Stay with us. After this short break, we will come back with more questions for Russell Motter. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Russell Motter, a longtime friend who is passionate about education, music, good food, and the theater. So Russell, I wanna ask you about a subject some folks feel is controversial and touchy, which is the SAT. Um, Since before COVID-19, there has been pressure building on colleges, the college board and high schools to dial back the intensity, make these tests voluntary for getting into college and reducing their significance in terms of what we know kids are capable of doing and what it means to be college ready. So what are your thoughts on where things are headed with the SAT and standardized tests in general? And, you know, just your, your general thinking about where we are in this moment. Wow. That's a, <laughs> it's that's a big a huge question. The college board is a Goliath in our profession, right? So I like the fact that Goliath is getting challenged. Mm-hmm. There are some things I like about what the college board has done with regard to the SAT and even the AP exams. I think those exams are much improved over what they were, say, 15, 20 years ago. To take the AP U.S. history exam, for example, 
it used to be much more content oriented so that students could basically memorize a bunch of facts and score really well on the test. Now, students really do have to think like historians and develop those skills in order to do well on the test. So I think that's a positive thing. Mm -hmm. I'm also in favor of maintaining the survey course at the high school level that leads to that AP exam. I think the survey is really an important course to teach. It's a hard course to teach because there's so much in United States history that students should know. You've got to pick your spots, I think, and really, you know, dig the post hole into certain specific areas. But taking a look at that broad sweep of American history, I think is an important exercise Mm -hmm. for students and for citizens. In terms of the SAT, again, I think what the students are being asked to do on the verbal sections of the SAT is much better than what they were asked to do, say, 10, 15 years ago. Right. You know, they're presented with documents now, and the test assesses how well the students can understand and read those documents. But, but he, here's the funny thing about it. In, in a way, the SAT has gone back to a kind of 19th century 19th century educational values. In other words, the students who are best prepared to take a test like that, that presents them, say, with an excerpt from Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois, the students who are best prepared for that have read Du Bois before. Mm. They know how to read those documents. It, that takes training. It takes you know, students need to be taught how to read that stuff. They need to be presented with that stuff. They need to write about that stuff. And, you know, I think the failing of education in general, especially public education, is that students aren't necessarily presented with those tasks much anymore. And part of it has to do is because teachers, they, they simply can't do it. I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who's teaching in Texas, AP Econ, and she's got 180 students, Josh. Wow. 180. Now, first of all, I don't know what you can do with 180 students, but I do know what you can't do with 180 students. You can't assign essays throughout the year to 180 students. It is physically impossible, you know, to grade student writing. Yeah. You know, I'm in a situation that is heaven, you know, compared to her in that regard. And, you know, as a country, we've got to think about resources and commitment, Mm. you know, to public education so that students, you know, students can learn to read and write. Yeah. It's a big question. It sure is. I mean, I remember, Russell, you and I, I think three or four years in a row, I traveled to San Antonio, Texas to read AP US exams. Yeah. And that was about a thousand college and high school educators gathered on campus for a week to read what was, I recall, somewhere around 300,000 exams. And that was intense. And there were parts of that for me that were disturbing. You know, you'd open the essay and there would be nothing there except maybe a note from the student saying, I have no idea how to respond to this question. So I'm going to put my head down. And those, I recall those moments were difficult for me. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'm with you on that. And, and that happens a lot. You know, in certain states, the AP exam is required for all yeah. students to take. There's some sort of, you know, funding, apparently, that, that states give for mandating the exam. There, there's some financial reward in giving the exam. And, you know, I just think that sitting a kid down for three hours and making them look at a test that they're thoroughly unprepared for is just simple. Humiliating. Yeah. Yes. And it's demoralizing for students. And it's a reminder that what their parents' tax dollars are paying for is, you know, not worth a dime. Yeah. Yeah, and and conversely, as you were saying a minute ago, if you're really well trained as let's say the historian in that moment, it's a beautiful thing when you come up against the challenge like that that particular assessment. Would I would imagine it would just feel fantastic. I've felt that feeling before when I was well trained and well prepared for moments like that. So I, I'm yeah, I hear you. Um, so Russell, back in 2013. Iolani School opened its Sullivan Center for Innovation and Leadership, and you and I helped open the doors and occupy the building for the first time. So what is the Sullivan Center's significance in your mind, and and what is its position within the ethos of Iolani School, which was founded in 1863? The Sullivan Center represents a kind of shift in thinking at Iolani School that had been underway for some time. Tim Cottrell, who's our head of school, understood precisely, I think, what that shift was all about. He came aboard when the Sullivan Center was just ready to open. And Valley Washta, the previous head of school, you've got to give him credit too, because Val understood the need for us to move forward. He understood that the Sullivan Center represented a kind of approach to education that required students to do stuff. You know, it was modeled on the D school Mm -hmm. at Stanford University. Right. And then Tim came in and, you know, he really established a vision for making that center a, a kind of hub of innovation, you know, at the school. You know, so um, again, a lot of stuff going on there where students are building things. You know, the engineering side of the, of our curriculum has been enhanced. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's one thing for students to go into a physics class; it's and it's another thing for them to actually build stuff. Right. Right. To conduct physics experiments as yeah, as, yeah. as physicists, right? As we were talking about earlier. Sure, sure. And as engineers. I mean, you know, because engineers need physics training, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and there's a lot of work done on social issues related to, say, climate mm-hmm. at the school. You know, we've got a great wet lab upstairs on the fourth floor, and the students are engaged in the neighborhood, which is the Alawai Canal. Mm-hmm. A lot of great stuff that Yvonne Chan is doing up there related to the canal and the future of the canal. So the the awareness, students become aware of their surroundings through that building. Mm. They also learn that they can do something 
about their surroundings. Right. And, yeah. You know, I think that's a huge, a huge thing. Yeah. That was, you know, my, my experience two years in that building and, and just following what's been happening ever since is that it's a, it's a place really, as you mentioned earlier, where you could, where you could be something, you could be a coder who's developing an app that might help the community, or you could be a sustainability coordinator helping move a project that would maybe clean up the Alawai, or you could, you could be an engineer who's making some sort of a, a robot that might relieve the pressure on, on, on labor or something like that. It's very much a being building where you be things, you do things and you make things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and where kids' imaginations can, you know, yeah. really get turned loose. Yeah, that's awesome. So, Russell, one more question. Um, this has been truly wonderful to talk to you today. And uh, finally, you and I are both pretty young, both in our early 60s, thank the gods. <laughs> Let's imagine you are writing your memoirs. And the chapter that you're working on is when you and your lovely wife, Annette, traveled to Washington, D.C. for Barack Obama's inauguration as our first black president. So what was behind that decision to go to Washington, D.C.? And what was the meaning of that moment, lo, these many years later, for you and Annette? Like, point, paint us a picture of that moment in your life. Be the historian of that moment for us. Well, you know, there was no question... I mean, we never gave it a second thought. We were going to go to this inauguration, right? And I felt like I had to go there to witness history, not just as a, as a historian, but someone who grew up in the Deep South. And, you know, my wife is, you know, Annette is half Hawaiian, half Black, and her father's side of the family is from Charleston, South Carolina. Her people have probably been here since the 1730s, been in the United States, I should say. And of course, her Hawaiian side here for thousands of years, I would presume. Mm -hmm. We really felt like this was a moment that we couldn't miss. And it was marvelous to be there. You know, the vibe in the city was so great. It was such a celebration. The greatest gathering at an inauguration ever. The coldest I've ever been ever. It was freezing in Washington, D.C. You know, I remember us standing there and we couldn't move more than two or three feet in any direction once the inauguration began. That's how crowded it was. You know, we felt like it was just worth it and we wouldn't have missed it for, for anything. That's an awesome memory, Russell. Thank you. Um, I, I suppose that I was living that moment through you the opportunity to talk to you about that moment afterwards. All I got to do was to watch it on TV here in Honolulu. And so it was it was awesome to have those conversations with you and to feel the energy that you you and Annette felt when you were there. Um, so that's, yeah. yeah, that's an awesome memory. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about it too. Um, you know, you you went to Punho's. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that connection too. And And we stayed with Dan Hale. Dan Hale was one of, President Obama's basketball mates. Mm -hmm. And right. so we stayed with Dan and, you know, that was really special as well. He was living in Virginia at the time. That was special. You know, I lived on Spreckles Street in the late 1970s at the same time that President Obama, his mother lived on the street too. Right. And, you know, I never met her. There was a chance that I probably played ball on the Wilder's, you know, Wilder Street courts 
with President Obama at some point because I was up there all the time. Mm. And so having somebody to to rise to the presidency from the neighborhood was also really a, a trip. Yeah. And we're all still feeling that today, for sure, here in Hawaii. Yeah. 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 So, Russell, thank you for being on the podcast today. Really appreciate your time. And I hope that you and Annette stay safe and healthy. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Josh. And all the best to Cheryl, too. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our original theme music is provided by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. He has produced 12 albums with over 100 songs and is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all the other major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. This series is funded by Education Change Agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film, Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Please join the newly launched What School Could Be virtual community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. Send your feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at mltsinhawaii and at Josh Rapoon. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Friends, even as COVID infection numbers decline here in Hawaii, stay safe, wear a mask in public places, stay physically distant from one another, and get vaccinated. Most of all, please bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho, and take good care.